Well, good morning, everyone. As Pastor Josh already mentioned, we are uh, kind of switching gears from our last series into this uh, new series. We wanted to, we really wanted to do a longer kind of lead up to Easter this year, and so uh, we're really excited about the series that we're jumping into today. As Pastor Josh mentioned, the title of our series is going to be Evidence. And so these are going to be a series of messages over the next several weeks leading up to Easter where we're going to kind of journey through the gospel of John with John as John journeys with Jesus as he recounts his um, experience with with Jesus later in life. And uh, we're going to look at some of the big things that happen throughout John's gospel. His gospel is different than the other three. It's kind of unique, um, different emphasis, different kind of tone to it. Different kind of uh, style and writing and so forth. It was written much later than the other uh, books in, in the New Testament as well. And so it's just a unique book. And so I'm excited about this series. And I think that each and every one of us are going to gain a lot from it and learn a lot from it that maybe some things we didn't, you know. Some of these stories are so familiar. And, and for those of us who have been in church for years that we kind of just, you know, we miss these subtle things that are, that are super deep and impactful. So it's going to be good. All right, well, let's just jump in. Um, John's gospel um, addresses two main things throughout the entire book. And uh, these two words we're going to look at here today, primarily, are two of actually probably the most misunderstood, confused, um, mis- misused words in the Bible. And, and they get confused only really when we bring these words into religion or Christianity or theology for whatever reason. But if you just set theology aside, you set religion aside, you set Christianity aside, we don't really have a problem with these two words. And those two words are faith and believe. Faith and believe. So if we take aside all religion and theology and we just use these words in the marketplace, in everyday life, we all know what these words mean, right? I mean, when you go out and use these in um, uh, decisions you're making or uh, things you're doing, if you're out at home or in the marketplace or in any other area of culture, we all know what these words mean. But then we bring them into theology, a theological context, and we get all confused with these words. And they've got to mean more than they mean, or they don't mean this, or they mean this, and you've got to add this to it, and so on. But when we believe something... Outside of a theological context, we primarily believe something based on evidence, right? You believe something. We believe things based on more than just, uh, you know, physical evidence, but evidence. There's lots of different types of evidence. But that's one of the primary ways we believe something or trust something or have faith in something is because we've seen it work or we've seen somebody do it or... Somebody who we trusted or was reliable told us, and we believed them because they were trustworthy. Those are two of the primary ways that you and I and everybody in the world comes to have faith or believe or trust in something. It's primarily by having the evidence of it or the testimony of a reliable person sharing it with us. And so when you were a kid... And you were in math class, and your teacher said, and you're learning your multiplication tables and so on, and they, you're going through them, and they go, eight times eight is, and, you know, if you were me, you were like, 67. And they're like, no, <laughs> no, because I was not good at math. 
They're like 64. What most kids didn't do was go, hold on a second. Start stacking eight rows of eight and then counting each one of them. One, two, three, four. No, you just believed your teacher, right? You trusted your teacher. You, you believed what they said, so you took them at their word. You had confidence in them. But now sometimes when we're going through life, what we come across is some conflicting evidence, some conflicting information, right? So uh, maybe one of the most important questions I may ask today is, is coffee still good for us? Well, there you go. Yes. Right? Every, you know, if, you know, every few weeks, months, whatever, you find an article, you're scrolling on Facebook, and it says what? Coffee is proven to be great for you. And if you're a coffee drinker, you go, yes, I knew it. And you drink it, and you read the article, and you're like, yeah, this is awesome. And then next month, coffee's terrible for you. Coffee's been found to be linked to this, this, and this. And then you go, ah, oh, man, you know. But you have confirmation bias, which we all have. And so what do we do? We disregard that article because they don't know what they're talking about. I like the article that says, coffee's good for me. So the way I look at it is I'm either cutting off about a decade of my life or I'm going to live forever. (laughs) One of the two. One of the two. (laughs) I'm either cutting it short or I'm going to live forever. But see, we have confirmation bias. We find the information that we want to hear that's going to confirm what I already believe or I already think. And so we go back and forth with these different things. Um, And so we struggle with this. Now the point is, all of our real world experience, we all know what it means to believe something. We know what it means to have faith in something. And so what we're going to discover here in this series, Evidence, is that when it comes to these words, believe and faith, They don't really lose their normal, natural meaning just because we drop it in a theological context. Okay? These these are normal words that they used in their language. And these are big words. And these are deep words. And they do have layers of meaning to them. When we just say faith, you know, that can have a broad range of, of meaning. In the Bible, when it talks about faith, it's talking about it in a very specific way. But what I want us to see this morning is that uh, when, it become, when it comes to religious faith, uh, belief, they're not, they're not divorced from reason or from logic or from evidence. There's this kind of um, thought sometimes out there that, that we get kind of faith, especially in religion and in Christianity um, as well, that religious faith, saving faith, is more like hope. And, it, and there's an element of hope to faith. We know that, right? That's the definition of faith. Faith is the... Evidence or substance of things hoped for. So there's hope. We know what hope means. But when it becomes a religion, a a, a topic about religion, we take faith and we kind of divorce it from logic. We divorce it from evidence. And people kind of have this idea that we're just, you know, Christians and people that, you know, people of faith, we kind of just are gullible or we just kind of believe what we were taught. And, you know, we grew up in America, so... I guess we're Christians, and if we'd have grown up in, you know, India, we might be Hindu or whatever. And so that's kind of the way a lot of people in the world and often think of faith and people of faith. It's like, well, you just believe that because that's just where you grew up, or that's just kind of what you were told and what you were taught. And there really isn't a whole lot of basis for your faith. You know, you, you Christians are just kind of hoping that this whole thing is just true in the end, and, you know, it, it all pans out. 
But that's not. That's not the way the Bible uses these words, and that's not the way John uses these words. That's not what they mean. They're not divorced from from reason or logic, as we're going to see. So, um, let's see here. So they get distorted as we go through... um, through life, but in the Gospel of John, hold on a second here. I got lost here in my notes. Yeah, in the Gospel of John, John was never told when he began to follow Jesus, when he left his father's business, when he became uh, a follower of Christ, leaving his father's business, leaving everything he had. John did not do that based on blind faith. He did not just take a leap in the dark. It was because of what he saw, what he experienced, and what he heard. And if the only reason that you're following Jesus today is because somebody said, hey, you just got to believe. You got to believe something, right? So you might as well believe Christianity. Or, hey, if, it's, if it is true and you're wrong, well, the consequences are pretty big. So maybe you should just become a Christian anyway. Just in case kind of thing, right? That's not what's happening here. And that's not what... The, the Bible's telling us to do. It's way, way, way more than that. And so, if somebody hasn't actually been talked into the gospel, so to speak, it's very easy for somebody later on in life to come along and talk them out of it. And I know we don't talk people into the gospel, but you know what I'm saying. Somebody hasn't been thoroughly convinced. Somebody hasn't really looked at the evidence. Somebody hasn't really clearly heard the message or received it. They haven't truly embraced the gospel. So there's an enormous difference between by faith and because of faith. And so John writes his gospel, possibly after most of his friends have already been killed. You know, Peter's probably been martyred at this time. Paul's dead. Um, The other gospels have been written. John's probably read them. And at the end of his book... John gives us the reason that he wrote his gospel. If you were uh, in English class, you know, you had to write a paper. Your English teacher wanted you to have a certain thing at the beginning of the paper that kind of talked about what your paper was going to be about. Does anyone know what that's called? A what? A thesis statement, right? And your thesis statement was to kind of set the tone for what your paper was going to be about, right? So you've got to have the thesis statement. Well, John kind of puts his thesis statement at the end of his book. He puts it at the end. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the end of it here. We're going to look at John's thesis statement of why did he write this. And then over the next several weeks, we're going to go back to the beginning and work our way through the gospel leading up all the way to Easter. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20. And we're going to read verse 30 and 31. And we've got to go fast. 11.08. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go fast. I'm going to talk pretty fast. Um, this, we're kind of a, this is going to be kind of a narrative preaching series. So we're going to be telling like going through the narrative story about what Jesus is doing. And so a lot of this stuff you guys are already going to know, so we may skip over some of the verses and stuff. But verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So here is the reason he wrote the book. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not in the book. And then later, at the end of the Gospel of John, it says that if we would write all the things that Jesus said and all the things that Jesus did, and we were to accumulate all this, that the books, the world couldn't even contain the books. So there's tons of things that Jesus did and said that we don't have an account of, that aren't written in this particular book, especially John's Gospel. But he says, but, but many other signs he did, but these, these signs, these specific signs that we're going to look at over the next several weeks were written specifically so that you and I would come to the conclusion, the same conclusion that John came to, and that is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's the conclusion John wants us to come to. And he's written his gospel and these specific signs for a reason so that we would also come to that conclusion in the end. So these events, these signs here, he, he uses that word signs instead of the word miracles. Right? Because a sign is more than just a miracle. A sign actually points to something as well. And we're going to see what that is today. Um, so we're going to go, we're going to be in John chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and just turn there, we'll be there in just a minute. So these signs, that, that there's a connector in, in Greek there that basically means, um, basically it's a clause that means it's a purpose or result of. So these signs are a result of um, what we're going to see here. So he's written these things so that we would believe. Not just, hey, you got to have faith, brother. You got to have faith, sister. You just got to believe. You just got to trust. You, you got to believe something. So, you know, pick, you got to pick something. And, and Christianity seems to be a good way to go. That's not what's happening. He's got evidence for us he's going to lay out through his experience. He's not simply telling us what to believe. He's building a case of why we should also believe it. A lot of us, a lot of Christians in the world today, I think, they know kind of what they believe. If you ask them, they would be able to answer a few questions. But if you ask them, you know, why do you believe it? That's where the, the bottom kind of drops out sometimes. And that's where it gets easy for somebody else to come along with new information or different information or a different message or another gospel. And if somebody doesn't have that foundation of why do I believe this, then it's really easy for somebody else to come along and persuade them to believe something else. And so, John chapter 20, he uses the word sign instead of miracles because these signs are going to show us specific things about Jesus. And some of these are actually, the one we're going to look at today, is kind of a type and shadow from things from the Old Testament. So this morning's first sign... We're going to look at, you all probably know it, and also the readers of John's gospel of his day also probably were familiar with it, and we'll see why uh, many people think that today, uh, of why this was probably such a common thing that people just knew. It was just a common story. And this is the story of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. So this is the first sign. This is where Jesus comes on the scene, and he's going to start his public ministry. Up to this point, Jesus has been living for around 30 years or so. He's been a carpenter. We don't know a lot about his upbringing other than he was a, he, he grew in favor with man and God. He was a carpenter. He lived in Nazareth. He was, went to the synagogue and was regularly somebody who read there. I mean, we don't know a lot about Jesus up to that point, 
But here's where Jesus is about to start his public ministry. And so John chapter 2 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does... I can't read that without saying it like that either, you know? Like, I can't read that verse without going, Woman, with that little kind of... You know what I mean? I don't know. You don't get to say that any other time, right? <laughs> Can, that... That, that word is actually, it's not, a, it's not a, in their culture, it was kind of like my lady, you know. It was kind of formal thing, but anyway, for us, no. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Kind of, we kind of read it like that, right? Like Jesus had an attitude. He didn't. He's not like us, okay? <laughs> so his mother said to the servants, whatever he says, you do it. So they're at a wedding. Now, weddings at this time are huge. Huge events. These things sometimes last for days, okay? They're expensive. They're a big deal. And they offer wine or, or food or whatever. So imagine your, your wedding and you've, you've, you've said that you're going to have cheesecake. All you can eat cheesecake and all the stuff. And all of a sudden, guess what? Wedding's not over. Cheesecake is gone. Now you're panicking. Oh my gosh, man, all these people. And so that's kind of the scene that's happening here, all right? They're, they're out of wine. The wedding's not over. This is kind of embarrassing, probably, as the guest. And we don't know who this couple is. We don't know. Is this a family friend? We don't know. They're all there. And this is a big deal. And for whatever reason, we also don't know, why does, why does Mary turn to Jesus and say this? Like, what was it about this moment that she thought, okay, now Jesus is going to do something? Again, we don't know. We just don't know all the, the backstory here. Uh, Jesus makes a comment, my hour has not yet come. Another thing that we think, like, what, what, is that? what does he mean? Because then he does it. So was this like not planned? Was this planned? I, there's, some, there's some things here we got to wrestle with. So they say to the servants, do whatever he says. And so Jesus, uh, so now there were, there were there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 and 30 gallons apiece. These are huge. Now here's what's significant about these things. Um, so this, uh, these signs are not random. Although this one seems a little bit random to me, right? If you're going to start your ministry, if you're going to start your, your, uh, your miracles, and you're going to do something significant to come out on the scene, turning water into wine really kind of seems kind of odd, doesn't it? If you just think about it. Like, he doesn't heal anybody here. He doesn't make somebody's arm grow out. He doesn't raise anyone from the dead. He doesn't walk across the pool. He doesn't do something that, and he actually does this miracle in secret, almost, it wasn't done out in public in front of everybody. Most of the people, as we're going to see in a minute, they didn't even know what happened. This story spread later. But why? Why this miracle? It seems kind of odd. So there's six stones, these big things they put for water, and it was for the purification of the Jews. Now, these pots were icons of the Old Covenant that was a temporary one that was going to one day be replaced. So Jesus, kind of totally under the radar does this miracle, but really it's a sign representing a lot more than that. See, God's temporary arrangement was, was disappearing. His covenant with Israel, the law, all of that stuff was coming to an end, and the new covenant was about to come. 
And so the story continues that Jesus has them fill the jars with water. Full. Six jars full to the brim of water. Because they're empty. Now here's what one of the, one of the great commentators, F.F. F. Bruce, says. He uh, died a few years ago. He's a, he was a British theologian. He wrote commentaries and, and different things. But his, uh, his commentary says this. They poured into these empty vessels the water provided for purification as laid down by the Jewish law and custom. It stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony, which Christ was to replace with something better. So they would fill these pots with water, they would wash, they would have to do all these ritual things, purification things, sometimes they'd have to wash to their elbows and all this stuff. But these pots are now empty, and Jesus fills them, and now he's going to replace them with something new, which was also a a sign of what was going to happen in the Old Covenant. And so John here, when you pick up the story in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, says, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. And then John goes into verse 8, and he said to them, draw out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And the master of the feast had tasted the water. Now, if you stop there, you're thinking what? Oh, no. They just filled up these things with water, and they just took this guy some water. He doesn't say he turned it into wine yet. It's just almost assumed, right, that that's what happened. So when the master of the feast had, fast, had tasted the water, that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. So this guy doesn't even know where it comes from. See, this miracle was done kind of in, in secret. His servants saw it happen. They knew where it came from. This guy doesn't. He's like the, the, the head banquet guy. That's who they take this stuff to. So now this guy tastes the water that's now been made wine. He has no idea where it's come from. So he gets really excited. So he finds the bridegroom. And he goes up to him. And in verse 10 it says, And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. So he sets the good wine at the end and not the beginning. He replaces what was at the beginning with something better at the end. And guess what? God was doing the exact same thing. He was replacing the old covenant with a new covenant, something better. Now here, when anybody's preaching on this text, almost always... Anytime anybody's preaching on Jesus turning water into wine, this text always turns into some kind of a rant or, or sermonette of, of why it's right or wrong, why it's permissible or not permissible to drink alcohol, <laughs> right? Like every pastor has to do that. So I'm going to spare that for you today because here's the thing. If you're arguing for or against drinking alcohol, this is not the text you go to. This is just not what this text is about. This text is not about drinking or drunkenness or alcohol, okay? It's just not. That's just not what it's about. So if you're going to argue that, hey, it's okay to have a glass of wine every once in a while, or no, you can never drink and it was actually grape juice and it wasn't alcohol, listen, this is just not the text to do it, okay? When it says that they drank till they were full, that just means they were full. It doesn't mean they were drunk, Just because it says he set out the good wine at the end doesn't mean it had more alcohol than the other wine. We're reading into this stuff, you guys. You see that? We kind of read stuff and we go, oh, they drank till they were filled. I mean, if you ask me at 4 o'clock today, hey, man, you want another cup of coffee? I'll probably go, "Ah, I'm full. 
I mean, that's not how we talk, but you get the point, right? I'm full. I've had 14 cups today. I'm good. Good. And it's good for you. So, so, you know, it's not that I wouldn't have another one. It's just that I'm full. That's all that means. That's all that means in there. They drank till they were full. It, it just doesn't mean that they were drunk. It, maybe they were. Again, we don't know. They could have been, this could have been a huge party. We don't know. I don't think so, guys. But again, there's my little rant. See how I snuck that in there? See how I snuck in a rant about not ranting? So, he turns the water into wine. They fill it up. He comes to the bridegroom. He says, wow, this is incredible. Nobody does this. This is really strange. You set the best wine out for the end. When we, we had the, just the average wine at the beginning. This is a really interesting thing you've done. And now I wonder, when John, later in life, He's an older guy. All these things have happened. He's sitting back. I wonder if he knew in this moment or if it wasn't until later on that God gave him the revelation of this miracle and the significance of it as he's thinking back and going, oh my gosh, wow. You know, we just don't know how these things, um, you know, how this process worked with people being inspired by God and writing scripture. So, the beginning of the signs of Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Not, hey, here's a guy we found. Why don't you leave your life and follow him? Most of you are going to be killed for following this man, this rabbi from Nazareth. Don't you just want to come and and be a part of this thing? No, 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 no. They saw what Jesus had done here, and they believed in him. They knew this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. After he went down to Capernaum, he and his mothers and brothers and his disciples and they did not stay there many days. So after this miracle, now Jesus starts his public ministry. So just as the original wine set the table for the better wine that was to come later in the wedding feast, in the same way God, through the nation of Israel, his people, established a covenant that would set up the world to expect a greater covenant to come after. So that's when John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan... River says to the people gathered, you know, from all Judea and Jerusalem, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There was a context that they understood. The Jewish people understood that. This was the original wine that set up the coming of the new wine and the better wine. And Jesus uses this kind of metaphor, this kind of example, this kind of illustration right here at the wedding feast at Cana, kind of to say something to the world, even though at the time the world didn't quite understand that, he was gonna, that he's basically saying, listen, something new and something better has come. That there was nothing wrong with what had come before, but what had come before was there to establish what was happening now. The old covenant was to make way for the new covenant. The old covenant was to make way for, for Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus turning that water into wine, making new wine, it was kind of a symbolic way of him showing that this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to seek and to save the lost. And establish the new covenant. So this was way more than a miracle. This was a sign. It pointed to something and somebody that nobody would fully understand until, until years later. So this was the first of Jesus' miracles. And his disciples believed in him. Now there's another kind of like a connector word attached to that Greek word for belief. And it means that they placed their trust in him. 
They place their trust in him. And that's really the element of faith that we really focus on a lot when we talk about the word faith in a biblical sense. It's, it's, that, it's that entrusting unto that's really that, that component that we have to have. It's not just an intellectual sense of facts. It's not just an agreement with information. It's an actually entrusting yourself to that person, to that truth and to that reality, which is what they did. Now, these guys went through some up and downs, didn't they? They believed, they didn't believe. They had faith, they lacked faith. Jesus is rebuking them for their unbelief. They're believing. I mean, they, they went through a process. Even up to, up to the very, very end, they were still doubting. Thomas, all the way till he, he feels Jesus' wounds, he doesn't believe. And so it was, a, it was a journey. It was a faith fight for them as well. So John, from the beginning, um, ex- establishes this, uh, this paradigm that we're going to find out through all the Bible and all the New Testament that there is evidence, that there is confidence that we can have in this message. Now here's the thing. If you're tracking along today and you're, and you're listening to this message, there are probably a few questions come to your mind. First question that really comes to my mind when I was, when I was um, studying this and thinking about this is, you know, unlike John, our faith doesn't come the same exact way that it came for him. Right? John came and wrote this based on what he saw. He saw, physically saw these things. Most of us aren't believers here today because of something we saw. Maybe you are. Maybe you had a random uh, encounter with the Lord. Maybe you had a supernatural thing happen. I don't know. But for most of us, right, I didn't see Jesus. I've never seen him physically. I've never experienced him in that way. But we believe our faith doesn't come by seeing. Our faith comes by hearing, right? comes by hearing. But we're not just asked... To, be, to, to, to take it by faith. We're not just asked to just believe. We're invited to believe. We're actually also commanded to believe. But it's not a command to believe on something that's not rooted and grounded and based in solid evidence. And this is what makes Christianity so significant and so different. We're invited to believe what happened 2,000 years ago based on the testimony of the people who were actually there. We're invited to believe based on the evidence and the testimony of what happened by people who were actually there at the time it happened. So John, based on what he saw, based on what he heard, based on what he experienced and believed, came to this amazing conclusion in the very next chapter when he wrote the most famous Bible verse ever, John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Really, John? Whosoever? Anybody? Anybody can believe? God can save any person? That's a big statement. How can he make that statement? Because of what he saw. Because of what he heard. What he experienced. What he encountered. He confidently says that verse. Anybody who believes can spend an eternity in heaven. And how can he make such a claim? He experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. He did see Jesus. And we can trust it, not just because we read a book from 2,000 years ago. One of the amazing things about the Bible, and this is what I love, and this is what makes us sharing our faith so, so great. When I learned this truth, it just like made the, most, the hugest difference in me in sharing the gospel. Because up until I really realized this, 
whenever I would go out and share the gospel with people, I felt like it was mainly on me to try to be clever enough, smart enough, say the right thing, be, be, have enough answers, and so on. And then I realized it's good to have all that stuff, and we do need to study, and we do need to, to, to you know, spend the time and, and get good at what we do, but that it's the word itself. The word itself has the power in it. So when we, when we say, look, I'm listening to John's testimony, but I don't know John. I don't know John. You don't either. You don't know him. How do you know he's telling the truth? How do you know that his letter is actually right? Because a, a bunch of scholars said it was? Because they, they said that it's accurate and, you know, all that stuff? I mean, no. It's because this word is alive. And when it's shared, when it's preached, when it's heard, and when it's believed, it changes people. It changes people. You and I deliver it. We deliver the message. We, we look at it. And the Bible invites us. God's not scared. Examine it. He says, test it. Look at the word. Try it. See if I'm not telling the truth. See if it's not the, actually the, the way it is. When you read the Bible and it describes human nature, you just got to ask yourself, is this really how human nature is? And what you're going to find is, yes, it's scarily accurate. It's actually so accurate that it, it could only be explained by a supernatural being. You and I don't even know the depths of our own wicked heart, right? Sometimes we're surprised by our own selves. But God writes it in his book thousands of years ago and tells us exactly how our nature is, exactly how we are. So the word itself is powerful. We deliver the message, and the gospel is the power of God to save. But we don't, we don't base our faith on fairy tales. We don't base our faith on mystical experiences or, or any of that kind of stuff. We're not out here irrational, illogical people just hoping in the end, hoping in the end that this thing called Christianity is just true, hoping in the end that I didn't give 80 years of my life to this thing called Christianity in the end, it just wasn't anything. But I guess if it is, if it is false, we're not going to know anyway, right? You know. But again, that's not a good reason to believe the gospel. We believe because we're built, our, our, our faith is on the solid solid foundation of the word of God and of historical evidence. Facts. These events happened. These are not stories in a book. This is the real, true, life-changing word of God. And as we're going to see over the next couple weeks, as we lead up to the greatest event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we walk through this gospel, as we walk through the book of John, we're going to see these different signs that point to the character of who Jesus is. The thing about the Gospel of John that I love, and this is what I always recommend people uh, as we close today. Whenever I, I'm sharing the, uh, the Gospel with somebody and they don't, they don't have a Bible or they have one, they haven't read it or whatever, you know, and people say, where do you recommend people start? You know, most people recommend you start Gospel of John. And the reason is because if you read that book, open heart, open mind, childlike spirit, and you say, God, I don't know who you are, but I want to know you. And I want you to reveal yourself to me. And you really honestly seek for him, search for him, read the Gospel of John slowly. I think, he's gonna, I think you're going to find exactly who Jesus is in that book. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Uh, whenever you debate um, other religions, um, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, those three primarily, they will not almost... I've engaged with so many people, it's weird over the years. They won't even let you uh, use the Gospel of John to debate them. 
I actually had a guy say, nope, we can't use that. We can't use the Gospel of John. Why? They won't accept it because it's over. It's game over. I mean, it's just game over. You accept Gospel of John, it's game over. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's God in human flesh on the way to heaven. Done. That's it. So they got to get rid of it. <laughs> you got to. Because you can't, you can't handle it. It's just too plain. It's too clear. And so they, they won't accept it. And so as we go through these next few weeks, I want to encourage us all individually, and maybe you have a Bible reading plan that you're doing this year and so on, but just add a chapter a day or half a chapter or so forth or whatever. And, you know, if you do that, you'll finish the whole Gospel of John by the time we finish this series. But that's my challenge for all of us. Let's read this this Easter season that same way. God, I want you to reveal yourself to me. I want you to show yourself to me. I want to know more of who Jesus is this Easter season than I did last year. I want to see more of Jesus. I want to, I want to be able to share more of Jesus with other people. And let's, let, let that be our prayer over the next few weeks, and let's go after him. Amen? Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you for our time of worship. Thank you for the saints, Lord God, that have come and gathered here this morning, Lord, to bless your holy name. Thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this church, all that you've done over this almost, almost a year, God, we've been here at, at College Avenue, Lord, at this location. It's incredible to think of what you've done, Lord, in this last year, and Lord, we're excited about what you're going to do this next year. Lord, we pray for our city and our community today that you would draw people into your house so that they can hear the good news that can change lives. As it changed John's life 2,000 years ago, God, as it changed multitudes of people throughout the centuries, and as it's changed our lives, Lord God, here today. Father, we ask that you would just move in our midst. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. All right, Journey, have a great week. We love you guys. God bless.